Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. Well, as I've mentioned in Hebrews, one of the claims that the author of Hebrews wants us to take from this letter is a sufficiency of Christ. So that's been the argument up to this point, um, just showing that Christ is superior. Well, now he's adding something else in chapter 7 as we're working our way basically to the climax of the book, which is chapter 9. Uh, so we basically set the, the foundation for this argument. Now in chapter 7, we're going into the superiority of the Melchizedekian priest. So while this letter is arguing for the sufficiency of Christ, there's something else that's added to this. The sufficiency and necessity of Christ Jesus. In other words, there is no priest, there is no other being, uh, including ourselves, that is going to make us worthy to enter into the heavenly temple. And so when we talk about the sufficiency and exclusivity or necessity of Christ Jesus, we might wonder, well, how do we really know this? Uh, because we might be tempted, as there's some Jewish thought that as Ishmael is also a child of Abraham, that maybe the way of the Ishmaelites is a path into heaven. But Hebrews doesn't allow for this. Hebrews makes it very clear there is only one way for us to enter into heaven. And it's through the true, eternal, Melchizedekian priest, Jesus Christ. And so as we hear this, we, we might think, well, can we really say it's this exclusive? How do we know that Christ is so necessary for the Christian life? Maybe it's something we as Gentiles have imposed on the text. Maybe this isn't really his arguments. We can evaluate that and look at it. And why do we say that it's Christ is so essential in terms of the grace and the power that is present within us? How do we know that we have to continually look to this one Christ? In other words, is this something we as Gentiles have imposed in the text? Or is this something that truly comes from the tradition and intention of the living God? And so as we consider this, we'll see first, Abraham, we'll first see priests on earth, as we see who this Melchizedekian priest is, and then we'll see priests by superiority. So we're basically going to be going verses 1 through 4, and then 5 through 10. And so let's begin as we consider uh, this priest on earth. Uh, there's something here that is important, because when we talk about the Melchizedekian priesthood, this is a priesthood that in terms of, of a Jewish mindset, probably not that significant of a figure, mentioned as I, as I said two times in Scripture, easily overlooked. You think, we have Levi, why do we need Melchizedek? But the author of Hebrews has driven home the need for us to see this exclusive and necessary relationship in Christ Jesus. There's no other way to heaven. And so if, if we're going to try and, and, and debate this and say this is something the Gentiles impose on the text, the author of Hebrews is saying this is not a Gentile imposition. This is the intention 
of God? I guess I shouldn't answer the question so soon. Uh, hopefully you keep listening. But the intention of this and the point of this as we've seen from Hebrews 5 verse 11 and 6 verse 12. Remember we saw that, that grouping or that inclusion of the argument. And the reminder was the beginning was sluggish or, or lazy in hearing, not wanting to hear the gospel call. And so this, this gospel call isn't just a one-time conversion event. It's a continual hearing the voice of Christ. Continually wanting to have this pursuit or relationship with a true priest. So it's not in terms of Christianity we say, well, there is no priesthood. All priesthoods have gone away. The author of Hebrews is saying we still have a priest and there still is a priesthood. There's just an eternal priesthood. And that's why he goes or concludes that in 6 verse 12 in saying sluggish to follow or imitate. In other words, continue to follow this Christ and pursue this Christ. Now the author of Hebrews, where we left off in this argument, moving on to chapter 7, is where he talks about Christ being the anchor. Remember the anchor point? Uh, this is not an anchor that rots. It's not an anchor that decays. It's not an anchor that rots. The anchor point in our Christian life is rooted in the most holy place. Now we have to understand and, and be reminded of the significance of this. Because when we think about the glory of heaven and we think about the models, certainly God is, is there in the models. His glory filled the models. We have record of that. And His glory is, is so present that if a priest goes in there ill-prepared, the priest died because he was not worthy to enter into the full presence and glory of God. But he was only there for a brief time. He didn't dwell there, didn't live there. He went in there once a year, did his work. The significance of Hebrews is Christ does not dwell in a model where God's glory presides or, or resides. Christ dwells in the fullness of what stands behind the model. Remember we talked about even in terms of humanity and our Productions. We have the prototype, and then we have the actual production of it. So when we think about the prototype that Israel have, we have the actual production, the actual glorious temple. And Christ resides there permanently, not because he has died and no one has gotten him out of the most holy place, but because he is so holy, so perfect, has made such a, a perfect offering and the offering of his blood, not for himself, but for us that were oriented in heaven. And so Hebrews is, is just prosecuting this and just putting it in her face and just saying, listen, there is no way to heaven other than through Christ Jesus. That is it. Not through our works, not through anything else, only by faith in Christ Jesus and, and walking and hearing and desiring him being his disciple that is only done in the power of the Spirit. But there is a bit of a controversy. Now, now for us, we, we wouldn't have a controversy with this. We would say, well, of course Christ is sufficient. We understand the Messiah. But there's something about Melchizedek that could imply an inferiority. And the problem that the author of Hebrews has to deal with it is not just the two references of Melchizedek in Scripture, but he has to deal with the reality of saying that Melchizedek has no genealogy. 
You see, this in the Jewish mind or the Hebrew mindset would be something that's scandalous. Something would be controversial. How can I believe a priest who has no genealogy? How can this possibly be superior to the, the Levitical priestly line that clearly has a genealogy? We might wonder, why, why is that so important? Well, for a prophet, Moses says before he dies in the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy 18, verse 16, that the Lord will raise up a prophet and, and, and the standard is from among your brothers. So it could be from any tribe. Anyone could, could come and, and, and be a prophet that the Lord would call. Now the Lord's going to put his words in a prophet's mouth and the prophet's word has to come true. If the prophet's word does not come true, you do not fear him, as Moses says. And so there, there is no genealogy for a prophet. The standard is, let me discern if what the prophet is saying is the word of God. If it is the word of God, genealogy doesn't matter. However, for the priesthood, this is radically different. Because Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out the standard of this. We have in Exodus 6, verse 25, that Aaron's son and Eliezer takes the heads of the father's houses, the Levites and their clans, and sets them apart to deal with the sacrificial system, the purity of Israel, a Levitical priesthood. We have in Exodus 28, 1, the Lord calls Aaron and his sons to come forward. So it's not just Moses making an assertion, showing favoritism to his brother. This is rather the Lord saying, Aaron and the sons need to come forward, and they're clothed with priestly vestments. They are set apart for this task. In fact, as we survey the Old Testament and, and we look at the priests, we have it as being synonymous with the sons of Aaron. The last reference in the Hebrew canon, again, the Hebrew canon ends with Chronicles. The last reference is under the great reforming uh, king, Josiah. In 2 Chronicles 34 to 35, we can read about this. But there we have Josiah, a king who is righteous, who, who does and tries to honor the Lord and brings about great reforms in Israel. What does he do? He reinstitutes the proper priesthood from the Levitical line. So he is one, as we find in Scripture, and as I've mentioned, you can probably even do this in Bible Gateway in the English, that just a quick search, priests and sons of Aaron, mentioned 64 times. It's just littered throughout the whole Old Testament. So you can understand someone of a Hebrew mindset hearing this argument of a priest who does his work once with no genealogy as being controversial. Because how can it be that when the great king Josiah, who brings about reform, reinstitutes the Levitical priesthood, that that's a good thing, and now all of a sudden we're supposed to say a good thing is not to follow that priesthood? How can that be? And so that is the significance in the backdrop to chapter 7. If you're wondering... Why is he beginning with this? The author of Hebrews understands this objection that's going to come up. And this is why he's dealing with, yes, the necessity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ. It's not about the Levitical priesthood. It's not about having Aaron and Christ. It's understanding how these models 
these prototypes work together. So this is where we move to this, these apologetics. And again, it's not apologizing for what you believe, it's a defense of what you believe. So he introduces Melchizedek again. Our soul or our being is grounded, anchored in the true Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ who resides in heaven. So now he says, okay, let's talk about the history of Melchizedek from Genesis 14. As we talk about Melchizedek, there's these names, these titles that are identified with him. Salem, which is uh, the same roots as, or the same uh, consonants. Again, in the Hebrew language, the vowel points were added later. And so there's plays on these words and the consonants. So Salem uh, can sort of be like a peace offering, is what it can literally mean, or it can also have the same root as shalom. And so it has this play on peace offering, city of peace, Jerusalem, vision of peace. Uh, Psalm 74, or 76 verse 2 picks up on this, associating Salem as Mount Zion. And again, that's the only other reference we have of Salem, but it's picking up on that vision of peace, city of peace, uh, Jerusalem, which is what Jerusalem literally means, vision of peace. So this priest king, Melchizedek, as we have here this understanding of who he is, that he is king of righteousness, king of peace. These are the two uh, titles given to him as we find in verse 2. So king of righteousness is literally what Melchizedek means. Melach is king, Zedek is righteousness. So you put those two words together, you literally have king of righteousness. Now when you have king of peace, that's Salem, so that's the play on Shalom, Salem, peace offering. So this is where the author of Hebrews is going. If you're familiar with the Hebrew text, your mind would be going here already, and you think, oh, okay, this, this makes sense. I, I get what you're doing here. So this notion of this priest-king who serves has no genealogy. And so as, as we find in verse 3, he's without father or mother. And this is where the Hebrew go, aha, see? He's not a valid priest. He could be a prophet. He can't even be a king. Because in order for him to be a king, he has to be in the line of Judah. So there's even scandal there. So they go, aha, see, gotcha. This, this Christ guy, he's a fraud. He's not the one we have to follow. He's not the Messiah. But the author of Hebrews doesn't start or stop there, does he? he? says he's without father or mother genealogy. He's okay, you got me. It's true. No genealogy in Genesis 14. But he says, but... Why is it? This isn't to create scandal. This isn't to um, show that he lacks credibility. But he says, let's think about what Genesis 14 is doing. He doesn't have a father or mother. He's one who continues on as a priest forever, like the Son of God. So the author of Hebrews is saying, let's think about this king who lives up to his name. King of righteousness, king of peace the king of the peace offering, which is what we ultimately see Abraham doing when he comes into his presence and them sitting down and having a meal. You look at the Levitical law, that's what you're doing. He's making that Thanksgiving peace offering before the king. So the Hebrew mindset would be grasping all this significance. But the significance of him being a priest forever is not to say that Melchizedek, if we go to Salem, we're going to find this guy named Melchizedek or to Mount Zion or go over to Jerusalem. The point is, in Genesis, as I've mentioned before, a significant person 
has a genealogy. The transitions uh, from one story to another story, there's a genealogy that links those stories. We, we figure out how Noah came about or how Abraham came about. We understand the backstory. And then we also have a record in Genesis of their death. But Melchizedek, there is no genealogy implying there is no beginning. There is no record of his death implying there is no ending. So what the author of Hebrews is doing is taking the theology of Genesis and saying, we know the pattern. We, we, we understand the argument that Moses did there in our history. But notice a precedent. The only priestly precedent is not Levi. He's saying there's actually a precedent that comes before Levi, Melchizedek. And this is a priest king who has no beginning, has no end. This is a priest who just is. A priest who presides and a priest king who lives up to his name. King of righteousness, king of peace. Now, we basically have summarized these, these first three verses of what's going on here. And then he goes on to say, and now Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils. So he's recounting for us what has happened prior to this of going to war. And now we have Abraham coming before this priest king, giving this payment, this tithe, this offering from the spoils of war. And so we say, okay, well, okay, we understand this history. What's significant about that? We understand there's a precedent of a priesthood before Levi. We understand this, this war. We remember that Abram was, was preserved. He was blessed through this. What's the significance? Well, this is where we have uh, this uh, encouragement of this superior priest. That he's not just, you know, this first priest who's a precedent uh, setting the stage of what's going on in covenant history. Uh, the, the priest that basically is on earth resides in Jerusalem. But he wants us to understand that this sets the stage for the priesthood or the Son of God, as he says, has no beginning of days, has no end of days, but he is a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. So again, there's, there's a typology here. He's not saying Melchizedek is Christ. But he's saying he certainly is a type of Christ, painting the picture of Christ, being the prototype uh, for what Christ is ultimately to do. And ironically, as we'll see in a moment, when we talk about the superiority of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood is something that becomes a prototype or, or, or the first type resembling the Melchizedekian priesthood. And you have this, basically, this, this pattern going on in Scripture that's absolutely mind-blowing. A precedent of an eternal priesthood a temporary priesthood, the eternal priesthood that presides in heaven. So how does this work then in what's going on with this argument? So now we say, okay, so we have the descendants of Levi. So now he's calling attention to the proper genealogy, saying, okay, I'm, I'm aware of what Moses has said in Exodus. I'm, I'm aware of this precedent of the priesthood and their service of the temple and, and the cultic work of Israel. And he's descendants of Levi that they are to take the, the, the tithes and gather the tithes of the people from their brothers. Again, we find in Deuteronomy 14 the requirements of this, the, the, the tithe festival, and how the priests have their different provisions as to how to work this out. This is something that the Israelites would understand. Uh, in their particular time, they bring their tithes to the priests. They have their festival as recorded in Deuteronomy 14, they have their storehouses, 
and then they would have this big gathering. And so you would understand that this would show how it's bringing these, these offerings and this celebration before the Lord, this, you know, eating in the presence of God, dining in his presence, having this, this peace meal uh, that's going on in Deuteronomy 14. It's a wonderful thing uh, that happens in Israel in its glorious days. But he wants us to understand this interaction, that it shows the superiority of the Levitical priesthood in this sense. And he says, now let's think about that. The Israelites say, sure, we, we, we don't deny that. We understand the distinctiveness of the, of the tribe, and we understand distinctively what they are to do and how they are to, to serve the Lord in their particular calling. They would also affirm Abraham's our father, and of course he's a father of the Levites. He, he's a father of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, because he ultimately fathers Jacob, Israel, uh, who's a son of Isaac. So yeah, we, we would see that correlation in that proper genealogy. And so as we hear that, we say, okay, so now let's think about how this works out. Levi is one who is born, one who dies. Aaron's born, dies. And in fact, he's saying, if we think about a genealogy and we think about Father Abraham, wouldn't we say that, that in a sense, Levi's in the loins of Abraham as he's a father in the genealogy of this as we read Genesis? So Melchizedek has no origin story, has no death record. But yet we have a, a record of Levi being born, and we know that Levi isn't one who continues. We, we know that Aaron's of this tribe, which implies that he has come and gone. So an individual would say, yes, I, I understand that. So, but yet we never have a record of Melchizedek showing his superiority, right? Say so yes. And they say, okay, Abraham comes here, has a peace meal uh, with uh, this priest, and then what? Well, he takes the spoils of war and gives him a tenth of the spoils of war, showing that Melchizedek is superior even to Father Abraham. And if he's superior to Father Abraham, he would be superior to Levi. So now, when we look at this in the Old Testament, hopefully by this time the lights go on and say, oh, so there is a priesthood that has gone before Levi that's superior to Levi. A priesthood has no beginning of days, no end of days. A priesthood that just endures. A priesthood that even Levi looks to for its credibility and not in and of itself. That's the point of what the author of Hebrews is doing here. And when we go back and we think about what is going on in terms of this text and Abraham uh, giving this payment to this priest, we think about these kings and some of their names. And we think about uh, their descent and who they are. We think about a king of the Goim, a king of the nations. The king of the nations, we think of all these international people uh, riding out to go and to make war with Abraham, uh, going to show that they're going to basically trample and dominate the earth. So the king of the Goim is the king of the nations, king of the Gentiles. That's what Goim literally means. So if you ever encounter a Jewish individual and he says, oh, you're a Goim, all he's saying is you're a Gentile, you're an outsider, you're not one of the Jews. What do you think about Abraham encountering this in terms of a typology? 
There's a picture here of the nations riding out to make war against the patriarchal people in the sense of Abraham being the father of the international people that will be called, but Abraham being victorious. And with the victory of Abraham and making this, this payment, this tithe, what does this communicate to us? That this picture and smaller picture of the battle of Armageddon, brewing with the nations gathering and coming to make war, and how we have the ultimate victory and deliverance, and then coming before Mount Zion, having this meal with the great priest who's eternal. This is calling attention to something that is so much bigger than just this event in history. We think of Revelation 21 of the nations riding out and giving of their gifts unto the Lord, the nations being represented. And here you have Abraham doing this very thing, conquering and triumphing and sitting before this great eternal priest. And so the point of this narrative in terms of this priesthood is showing us that there is a priesthood that is beyond our very existence. A priesthood that is beyond the existence of Levi. A priesthood that presides after the battle of Armageddon. Because when you think about that precedent in Genesis 14, it's something where Abram comes in a situation that is not peace, right? War is not peace. And so there's, there's turmoil, there's anguish, there's unrest, the nations coming together to make war and to capture the people of God. And then you have one who stands up, carries out this justice and rescues, and then carries out this offering before the king of peace. And he enters into the vision of peace, the city of Jerusalem. And he's there sitting down, having a meal with this priest king. As Hebrews calls this to our attention and saying to us, how are we going to get to the end? Abraham didn't really get to the end so much relying on himself. Why is he sitting down having this meal? It's because he's thankful. He's thankful that the Lord has delivered him, that the Lord has delivered him through the turmoil and has given him victory. And as the Lord has given him victory, where does he come? He dines at the table of the eternal priest king. So when you think about this precedent in Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews is inviting us to see such a bigger picture than, than just this temporary provision a bigger picture than just the holy city of Jerusalem on this earth or this temple on this world. He's inviting us to see the ultimate grounding of the end of history and to think about the big picture of the true vision of peace, the city of Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, the nations bringing the plunder to the great king, dining at the king's table, of the true Melchizedekian priest king. Levi was inferior. Levi paid tithes to this king. Levi is not the eternal priesthood. And so the author of Hebrews is saying right here, if you want to say lacking a genealogy is scandalous, he's saying I'm challenging you to prove it. Because the lack of genealogy establishes a precedent of an eternal priesthood that never ends. An eternal priesthood that gives credibility to the temporal priesthood. An eternal priesthood that invites us into the presence of the eternal God in the true temple, not 
in the temporary provisional temple in the provisional city of peace that did not establish everlasting peace. And so when we ask this question then, why is Christ so necessary? Why, why is Christ so essential? Why, why do we say that Christ is the exclusive way in which we have life? Because we are not going to pass through the battle of Armageddon and pass through this battle victorious apart from Christ. He is the great warrior who rides out from heaven accomplishing our victory. And when we have this anchor point in the heavenly reality, the author of Hebrews is not saying, don't just look to the end point and say, well, my end point's secure. I, I hope I stay faithful to the end, and I hope I have some assurance, and I hope that I can pass through it. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't you understand? As Christ, the eternal priest in the lineage of Melchizedek, as we already have this precedent, and it's a picture of the greater reality, he resides in the most holy place that even the Levitical priests could only enter as a prototype. And if they were not pure enough, they died. But our priest lives there. He doesn't get tarnished. He doesn't rot away. He's not abandoned there. He resides there because he is the only priest who has been worthy to enter into that place and reside there forever. And as he resides in that place and we take hold of him by faith, the author of Hebrews is saying, now do you hear the force of where I ended in chapter 6? Do you hear it? That as he is the anchor for our soul, we know that as we take hold of Christ by faith, we reach into the most holy, eternal place that will never be conquered, will never be compromised. And as we take hold of him and walk in the power of that faith, we know that we will pass through the battle of Armageddon because our Lord is a victorious Melchizedekian priest who will bring us to the other side, not just a table between a priest and another man, but to the heavenly banquet table where we will enjoy the true vision of peace and all of what it means as it comes down from heaven. Let us then cling and walk in our Savior. Let us not see this as some minimal thing. Let us not see this as a small thing, that Christ has come and died and redeemed and secure. This is essential. If this is not true, we have nothing. And it's not that we look to something else. It's not that we add to his work, because that would muddy it. But we look to the pure work of Christ. And as we walk in his power as his redeemed by faith, we live, I love how our catechism reminds us, and the older I get, the more I appreciate this, that we live out of gratitude. We do not add to it. We live out of gratitude because our shield and defender has gone before us as he has sheltered Israel, so he shelters us through our wilderness time and leads us to that heavenly temple, the true Jerusalem, the true vision of peace, as the true king of righteousness and the true king of shalom or peace. Let us walk in the confidence of his power. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, 
please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.